Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Lula defeats Bolsonaro to win third term as Brazil's president. Former Brazilian president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva reclaimed the office yesterday on pledges to defend democracy, save the Amazon rainforest, and bring social justice to Latin America's largest nation, defeating Brazil's Trumpian incumbent in a remarkable political comeback some three years after he walked out of a prison cell. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's the co-host of Fault Lines, and he joins us from Rio de Janeiro, Jamaro Thomas Jamaro. As always, man, welcome back. Oh, thanks, man. How you guys doing today? We are doing well. We are doing well. So for Latin America, uh, Lula's return to the Planalto Palace adds the regional giant to a streak of wins by leftist politicians. Uh, Lula joins Colombia, Chile, Peru, Honduras, Argentina, and Mexico. This, in in the eyes of many, is kind of the culmination of a hard move left. Your thoughts, Jamaro Thomas? You are absolutely right. I mean, Bolsonaro, what they call him, Trump of the tropics, had basically run this country. I mean, there's a few things. As we know, Lula was put into a cage, basically, on this thing called Operation Car Wash, where uh, basically a soft coup in the way that people think about it. I mean, all things being equal, Lula was the favorite to win that contest. And there were all sorts of reports and information coming out showing that working behind the scenes, they were basically threatening the judiciary in order to get rid of Lula out of the race because Bolsonaro was going to lose that race. So from the standpoint of the left, they look at this as a correct, let's say, rejuvenation of a democratic order. That's the way they're looking at it. And as you saw the protests in Sao Paulo, I mean, it was extreme. Here's the catch, though. The election was extremely close. I mean, Lula won, what, 50 point nine percent, if I'm not mistaken, with Bolsonaro only getting 49.1 percent, a dramatically close race. And so you had a divided country um, that came to the polls. And you, from the standpoint of Bolsonaro supporters, it is unclear what he's going to do or whether or not he's going to support the election itself. For over a year, Bolsonaro has basically said, I'm not going to support the results. The only way I would lose is that there's fraud, massive fraud, basically taking a playbook from Donald Trump. His supporters, however, have come out and recognized, grudgingly in some cases, Lula as being um, president, as being the winner. Bolsonaro at this point has been quiet. He hasn't even made a statement. And so we are basically waiting on him to see what he says. But if he comes out and basically denies the results of the election, he's going to be somewhat isolated at this point. His supporters, however, may still take it. I mean, they've been burning tires, blocking off exits with trucks um, and those type of things. So. We'll see. Right now, we're kind of waiting to see whether or not Bolsonaro makes a statement. And if so, what is that statement going to be? But up to this point, he's been recognized by all sorts of world leaders, including Joe Biden, who sent the thing basically saying he wants to welcome Lula. Right here. I send my congratulations to Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva on his election to be next president of Brazil following right here, quote, free, fair, incredible elections, unquote. And so these world leaders are basically trying to what they seem to be is acknowledging Lula won. 
And for all of that stuff about, okay, it's fake, it's fraud and everything else. Well, other world leaders aren't accepting it. And even his own supporters, meaning let's say political supporters and political allies, they basically acknowledge, many of them has acknowledged Lula's win. So it's a fascinating um, turn, but it was a contentious race. I think something, there's an article in Common Dreams on eve of Brazil's election, Meta and TikTok pushing Stop the Steal 2.0. At this point, it's safe to say that Meta has become Bolsonaro's official disinformation machine. Well, we've seen articles in, uh, we've covered articles by Alan McLeod in uh, Mint Press News that has shown that Meta is clearly the U.S. deep state's disinformation machine. And I think they wanted, they really wanted Bolsonaro to win because sadly he's much more closer, he's much closer closer to the U.S. uh, actual ideology. But in painting him as the Trump of the tropics, he's Trump's guy, he's Trump, 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 Trump. It made it very difficult for the Biden administration to then come and then support him and say he should win. Basically, when they and, and, and when people are arguing, well, he's trying to do the same thing as Trump, blah, blah, blah. I think they backed themselves into a corner that made it hard for them to push any kind of thing to overthrow the election. One one thing, if I could add to that, Garland, is I think it's very important when people hear the designation of the Trump of the tropics and, and all of that. Steve Bannon was very important to Bolsonaro's camp first campaign. Yes, he was. He was a key advisor. And so that that. That moniker of Trump of the tropics was well-earned and deserved. Yeah, but I'm just saying it makes it hard for the Biden people to support him overthrowing anything because they they bought into that. I'm not saying it was wrong. Oh, no, no, no. And I wasn't indicating that we're trying to infer that you were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to say that that moniker was well-earned. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was definitely well-earned. I mean, from not just the fraud thing. I mean, even COVID. 700,000 people died in Brazil um, from COVID. And if you notice, Bolsonaro was running around screaming COVID wasn't real or this isn't and important. It. Or, yeah, hydro, what is that? Hydrochloric, um, whatever that thing is called. Right. They were basically telling people that this wasn't a big deal. Now, the government itself might have been taking action. But the fact that the president is basically screaming that this isn't real. Well, think about what that does to the population of people who basically back him and decide, well, this is not real. I want my hydrochloroquine instead of X or Y. Or I want my, what is it, horse. Um, horse tranquilizer, whatever they were using. <laughs> I mean, and so you have a lot of people basically, or horse pace, whatever it's called. But you have a lot of people who basically follow this guy every bit as much as those people follow Trump, which creates a problem in trying to get those people vaccinated. In fact, I go further. If there was a report, Health and Human Services, that came out. I remember this and I was gassed by this. So in the report, U.S., I mean, and they're basically using this as triumphant, like we did something great. And they talk about dealing with malign actors, those state actors. And in one of those cases, it says examples include using the OGA's health attache office to persuade Brazil to reject Russian COVID-19 vaccine and ordering CDC technical assistance in lieu of Panama accepting the office of Cuban doctors. Basically, a country that had lost 700,000 people from COVID, they are basically bragging that they pushed them not to use the Sputnik vaccine. Now, Bolsonaro, who is, like you said, Trump of the tropics or Trump's guy, well, apparently, based on this report, went along with that nonsense. They lost 700,000 people in this country. They were the second highest um, from the United States, which lost over a million. And so, yeah, there they were real world consequences, meaning from the standpoint of material life um, in Bolsonaro, been in that office. And keep in mind, Lula would have never done that, meaning those people might still be here today if Lula was not thrown into a cage 
um, you know, with shenanigans. Let's call it that. <laughs> I would call it a soft coup more than anything else. But no, it's fascinating. This campaign got really contentious, though. I mean, balls and arrows, people were accusing Lula of being a Satanist, a communist, saying that he was trying to close down churches, um, going so far as it, basically he was trying to make this thing of I am the spiritual leader in this country, trying to get evangelists, Christians, et cetera, on his side, make, cutting it in these kind of religious terms. Lula more so focused on economics, dealing with poverty, the poor, et cetera. And so those were kind of the lines. They were accusing him of being a pedophile and a, um, and a cannibal, talking about <laughs> balls and arrow. Um, and so very contentious. And it became one of those things where if you were on the left, from your point of view, well, Lula was thrown into a cage illegally, basically in a coup. Um, and from their point of view, Lula taking power is correct. But from the standpoint of the right, they look at Lula as a criminal. Um, you know, he's going to just give all this money to the poor and those people don't want to work, et cetera. And so you have these two lines where there is no middle ground between those two. And so they became contentious. I mean, even violence on the streets. I mean, they were violence after the election by Balls and Arrow supporters who were basically upset. There was a congresswoman who chased the black guy down with a gun in order to get the guy to get on the ground. After they got into an argument over the Lula stuff, there was a killing, or at the very least, one guy shot at cops and threw a grenade, injuring two others at the point where the court told him not to disseminate misinformation. No, there's there's a weird normalization of political violence that's a little bit unnerving. But all things being equal, Lula won, even though it was a very close race. Getting getting back to Garland's question, and this is from the Common Dreams piece, Meta claims that Brazil is a priority region and that the company is committed to enforcing policies and practices that uphold the integrity of the vote. Talk about their involvement in undermining democracy. Well, I mean, if they're putting out information, one of the big things here had to do with combating misinformation. And this was from, let's see, the one who was in charge of, it's called the TSC, which is basically the Supreme Court for the elections itself. Their job was basically to try to make sure that this election was fair and clear. And all things been equal, they pretty much did a good job with that. The head person for that is uh, Alexandra, there is Morales. Um, he is Superior Electoral Court, Alexander de Morales, or Morris, Morris. He basically, his job was to make sure that putting out information in order to basically combat misinformation. They also went further. And this idea of basically showing when the electoral machines were down and everything else. And Balls and Arrow, to his point, and his various people, every bit as much as Trump did, will put out misinformation. Oh, the machines are fraud or the machines don't work properly or they're you know cutting our votes. Nonsense. Elections here are compulsory. And because elections are compulsory, the person who's basically going in order to make their vote, well, there's a tether between the person and the vote. If they don't vote, there's either a fine or for that matter. They have to explain themselves to the court. And so this idea that he's that fraud is all over the place. Yeah, Facebook is a good harbor for that. I mean, think about the way Facebook is used by the right wing in the United States. And then they make it so bad. The moment that you point out that, OK, this is misinformation or this is nonsense. So you guys are making this up. Then it becomes, OK, well, you're saying we're making this up because you're trying. You're part of the scheme in order to defraud the voters of Bolsonaro. Like it's this weird insular um, sandbox where this kind of stuff can basically generate and proliferate. Um, all things being equal, though, for the most part, it didn't seem to necessarily work, or at the very least, it didn't necessarily work to the point of getting Bolsonaro, um, uh, getting Lula to fail. 
What are some of the um, like changes, or what are some of the main things that uh, you know you're you are expecting to see with uh, with with this change of um, of leadership and change of government? Well, one rainforest issues, issues of poverty, meaning dealing with with the poor. I mean, one of the things that Lula pointed out when he was running the race was he basically uh, right here. He built a broad coalition in recent months from the center right to the far left with people concerned about what might happen in the Bolsonaro term. But he basically used a working class base, just like he did the first time around. He says, let's get back to fixing the country and let's get back to eating and drinking beer on the weekend and barbecues. Bolsonaro goes crazy because he thinks only he can, but we want to eat barbecues too. Basically, his issue was economics. We want to get money into people's pockets. We want to raise people out of poverty. Um, that's where his focus was in this particular race. And of course, climate change, rainforest, and the basic typical left-wing issues. I mean, the first time around, Lula pulled 20 million people out of poverty. I mean, he left with an 80% approval rate. It was astonishing. And so he's, I suppose he's trying to do that now in adverse circumstances. Because for one, you have a divided country, and you also have a country where the economics is not all that great right now. And so it's going to be interesting to see what he does, even from a foreign policy standpoint. Keep in mind, Brazil has, what, 200 million people. It's the largest in population in South America. Part of BRICS. BRICS is this kind of secondary economic organization that's being created in order to challenge um, Western hegemony. Now, they may not say it that way, but that's basically how it's coming out in practice, especially with Europe taking a hit and the way that it's taking a hit. And so what um, Brazil, South Africa, Russia, China, these are main countries. So it's going to be interesting to see how Brazil changes on this. But Lula doesn't have absolute power. He has to deal with basically a center or right um, government. Meaning he has to work with them in order to get laws and everything else passed. So he's going to be limited on some level in what he can do, but we'll see. It's going to be interesting to see how this works out. We have just 45 seconds left on the broader geopolitical landscape. Again, Colombia, Brazil, a lot of dominoes have fallen in the global south from the U.S. perspective. Well, yeah, they have. I mean, I guess the question is, what does that mean right. globally? Yes. And I'm not quite sure what that means. I mean, all things be equal, I would imagine these countries are going to work together on some way. And how that looks to us, I mean, I can only imagine that this notion of the world order shifting or mm -hmm. this kind of hegemonic control being broken down into multi-world order, it's only going to get stronger with these countries basically united on the left. Jamaro Thomas, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. You guys have a good one. You too. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Former MP George Galloway reports, it's done. Liz hashtag, hashtag trust messaged hashtag Anthony Blinken seconds after hashtag Nord Stream <laughs> pipeline explosion. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer who served in the former Soviet Union, implementing arms control treaties in the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Storm and in Iraq, overseeing the disarmament of weapons of mass destruction. His most recent book is Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika. Scott Ritter, as always, Scott, welcome back. 
Thanks for having me. So George Galloway, during his program, says that Liz Truss text, sent a text to Tony Blinken seconds after the Nord Stream explosion saying it's done. And it is George Galloway's position that Britain was responsible for blowing up the pipeline. And he says, unfortunately, Liz Truss is more uh, like Austin Powers than than she is 007. Your thoughts, Scott Ritter? Well, I mean, if this is indeed true, this is um, I mean, it's a dynamic piece of information. Uh, uh, the the I think um, the understanding is that uh, her phone wasn't hacked, so meaning someone hacked into her phone, as so much that an existing backdoor into the um, Apple Cloud that has been routinely exploited by U.S. intelligence and law enforcement um, has been exploited now by Russian intelligence, and that's how they gained access to this uh, alleged. Um, text message. Uh, if it's true, this is you know a smoking gun. It shows that uh, the United States and Great Britain uh, colluded in the um, in, in committing an act of terrorism against a NATO ally. Um, plain and simple. And um, I would imagine that um, Sweden, for instance, knows whether or not this is in fact uh, true because they actually collected evidence from the the site there's allegations that they actually picked up an unexploded um underwater unmanned drone mm-hmm. next to the next to the pipeline that hadn't blown up so uh, it, germany is is confronted with um a situation are they a credible sovereign nation uh, worthy of the, the the name or are they just a flock of sheep uh who function as little more than um you know, tools to be used by the United States and Great Britain um, in in their, you know, ongoing geopolitical struggle against uh, Russia. You know, there's an old African uh, proverb about sheep and shepherds. I don't remember the exact words, but basically what they say is the sheep spends all of its time fearing the wolf and thinking the shepherd's going to protect it from the wolf. And ultimately, it gets slaughtered and eaten by the shepherd. <laughs> and in this instance, <laughs> I think it's perfect because the U.S. is the shepherd. And then again, it, again, Scott, it comes back to the reality. It's kind of like WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks would, would reveal something that we already knew, but we would have the evidence for it. And everybody knew that, you know, the U.S. was involved in this in some way, shape or form. And now this is just the evidence. And the Germans already knew it. And I think in the short term, people are going to pretend like it's nothing. But I think over the long term, this is going to have a devastating effect on the coherence of NATO and the EU. I think those uh, organizations are a shambles and I can't see them staying together more than a couple years. Scott. No, I agree totally. Um, you know, an alliance is based upon trust, uh, but there's never been trust. This is what I don't understand. Um, <laughs> you know, the National Security Agency has been caught with their hands in the um, leadership communications cookie jar of every ally in Europe. Uh, we spy on them nonstop. And it's not that it's a secret, meaning that this is a U.S. secret to got, you know, a, you know, uncovered by the jury. We use other NATO allies to facilitate the spying. For instance, if we want to spy on Germany, 
We use the French to help us. We want to spy on France. We use the Germans to help us. We use the Dutch to help us spy on the Belgians. The Belgians to spy on the Italians. So we have turned everybody against everybody. Um, I mean, I'll just reiterate, the United States is the world's worst ally. You do not want to be allied with us. Um, I, I wish I could say something different, but and maybe in the past, uh, I believe that we, we were good allies. I think, you know, there was a time uh, prior to the end of the Cold War where, you know, we were a reliable ally. We were willing to, you know, put up and back up. But today it's all about us. It's only about us. We only care about us. We don't care about anybody else. Um, and if you remove that glue, the, the, the concept of, you know, a, an alliance being a mutually beneficial relationship, you remove that glue so that it's a solely beneficial relationship, the alliance isn't going to last much, uh, isn't going to last that long. And I, I think that the Nord Stream incident is going to be, you know, one of those tipping points. Um, you know, when people write the history of the fall of NATO, this is going to be one of those big deals, um, together with, I believe, the coming defeat of NATO in Ukraine um, that felt the end of the uh, of that alliance. You know, Scott, my thoughts are this. The puppets that run the le- puppet leaders in the U.K., they already knew that the that that I mean, excuse me in in Europe they already knew that their countries are colonies and they have no sovereignty and they have no independence they know that they're working at behest of the U.S. empire but part of their job was to keep that from their people to ensure that their people thought they had independence and sovereignty so I think the problem they have now is they're not going to be able to do it anymore and the jig is up which means this whole game falls apart what do you think of that Scott? I think we are looking at the demise of the rules-based international order, you know, all of its component parts, the G7, the EU, NATO. Um, and the United States is going to be left holding a, a, an empty bag. It's, you know, here we are on Halloween. You know, I, I think the United States is accustomed to being go, able to go around to its uh, various NATO and European allies with and, and shout trick or treat, get the bag filled up. I think tonight they're coming home with a an empty bag. I don't think anybody's going to put anything in the bag. No, America. Again, I'll go back to what I've said. We're the worst friend in the world. We're the worst ally. We're the least reliable nation in the world. We do not stand up for any obligation. We only care about ourselves. Uh, and people sometimes get confused when they see us helping someone, saying, oh, look, America's helping somebody. But then they have to look at the small print. America's only helping them because it's, you know, it's benefiting us. We never are philanthropic. We never say, hey, let me do this out of the kindness of my heart. We may have been in the past, but we're not today. And this is a, a difference. I mean, again, I'm not saying Russia's perfect, but the fact is Russia's ready to send you know, 500 tons of food to Africa free of charge. That Russia's ready to, you know, distribute, um, you know, fertilizer free of charge. Now, we know that Russia does this, we say free of charge, but Russia's banking on the goodwill that it will be engendered. But isn't that why you do most good things, is that you want people to think that you're a good person, et cetera? You know, where's the United States sending free liquid natural gas? to Europe, especially since we now have participated in the destruction of the uh, Nord Stream pipelines. Where are we uh, doing that? No, we charge them five, ten you know, times the price. Look at France and Germany right now. They're starting to talk about sanctioning the United States. Why? 
because we're deliberately taking advantage of the situation in Europe to steal their industries away to the United States. Um, a friend would say, hey, France, what can I do to keep Michelin in France? Hey, Germany, what do I need to do to keep Audi in Germany? But that's not America because we're not your friends. We want to steal your industry and make you pay for it at the same time. You know, you mentioned Apple in the back door into Apple. That makes me think about Huawei and the fact that I want to say it may about may have been about five or six years ago, there were these huge articles that all of a sudden the United States had to get rid of all the Huawei routers be, that were in the U.S. intelligence system because the United States was afraid that Huawei had backdoors into their systems that were going to allow them to spy on uh, United States communications. And then just, what, a year or so ago, or maybe a year and a half, two years ago, there was this big issue again with Huawei as Huawei phones are some of the most popular phones in the world. And we had to kidnap the Huawei executive in in, in Canada. Um, so you're, you're talking about Apple just made me think about how hypocritical all that is when we know about the realities that happened with Huawei communications and their routers and their phones. And then that also takes me to this Forbes article, phenomenal this is from October 3rd, phenomenal security breach as new UK Prime Minister Liz Truss's mobile phone number is leaked. <laughs> According to a report, mobile phone numbers for the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Kwasi Kwarteng, and 24 members of the UK cabinet were also accessible to anyone subscribing to this online site. Scott Ritter. <laughs> you know, operational security is uh, paramount. Um, the decision making that's done in the inner circles of any nation is considered to be closely held. Um, Clearly, if Liz Trust is uh, Trust is uh, sending a signal to uh, a text to uh, Anthony Blinken um, on her phone, you can imagine what else she is doing in terms of you know sensitive work. Um, I would just say that the you know the entirety of uh, Great Britain's um, decision-making process, uh, economic, foreign policy, defense, has been compromised, um, and. If you're the United States, if you're France, if you're Germany, if you're anybody who's been dealing with the British on these sensitive issues, uh, you need to understand that the, the jig is up. Um, Russia, for instance, knows everything, <clears throat> including all the duplicity, all the lies, you know, where you say one thing in public, but it's behind. This is probably, you know, has the potential in terms of content uh, to be just as damning as the, what happened with uh, Hillary Clinton when WikiLeaks published the diplomatic cables, where it was proved that we would say one thing to somebody, to to a, a government in private, and then the embassy would cable something the exact opposite behind their backs. Um, then we get to Huawei. I just want to say this: uh, you know, no evidence has come out that Huawei had done anything that it was that they were accused of. This is all mm -hmm. based on a presumption. Mm -hmm. And you have to ask yourself, well, why why would we presume this? <laughs> oh, geez, because maybe. We're the ones that use U.S. manufactured technology uh, as a backdoor in. And gosh, didn't Ed Snowden publish the documents that show it, it, he published these uh, NSA internal newsletters that are, of course, at the highest you know, classification possible, uh, where they showed NSA operatives in Europe intercepting um, 
uh, shipments of, uh, and I can't forget, the, I forget the name of the company, but they were intercept these shipments going into Russia, pull them aside, and start installing all this uh, stuff to, to control, you know, so the NSA could control and monitor, and they would, they'd ship it all in. And because uh, that's what we do. We're the scum of the earth. We're the worst people in the world. And because we know what kind of bad things we do, we just assume it's being done by everybody else. Uh, we got two minutes left. Berlusconi suggests how to end Ukraine conflict. Uh, that's falling apart, too. More and more people are saying, get me out of this mess. Scott, we got about uh, two minutes. Yeah, it's uh, it's a mess. I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing something right now on this New Yorker article that came out uh, just uh, last week. Uh, that's just glowing or two weeks ago, you know, it's just a glowing internal discussion with all high level sources about, you know, how the United States has worked with Ukraine to, to make everything good. Uh, There's competency throughout the Ukrainians were always in charge. America was always there to help them. And yet today we have to look, it's falling apart. Why would they publish that article? Why would people cooperate? Because it's about messaging. It's about spinning. The war's over. Ukraine is lost. And they've lost because of the incompetence of the United States and NATO and Europe. And you're going to see a lot of people trying to jump ship. And this is why uh, the U.S. administration of Joe Biden was trying to get ahead of the curve, uh, allowing all these people to cooperate with this author to create this spin piece uh, that, that, that implies that, no, no, everything was under control up until now. Uh, and anything that happens after this date, of course, isn't our fault. It has to be the fault of someone else. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. You squeezed us in today in a very tight schedule. We greatly, greatly appreciate that, and we look forward to having you back. Hey, thanks a lot. Have a good day. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. No one can sit out the coming storm. President Putin's milestone Valdai speech, Western hegemony should be replaced with an actual order respectful of all, according to the Russian president. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist, Ted Rawl. As always, Ted, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Ruling the world is what the so-called West has staked in this game, which is certainly dangerous, bloody, and I would say dirty. It denies the sovereignty of countries and peoples, their identity and uniqueness, and disregards any interests of other states. This is according to President Putin. In their so-called rules-based order, only those making the rules have an agency, while everyone else must simply obey. End quote. Ted, when you look at the illegal invasion of Iraq, the assassination of Gaddafi, the countering malign Russian Activities Act in Africa, the attempted imposition of Juan Guaido as president of Venezuela, it's really hard to argue with President Putin's uh, analysis of world dynamics. It is hard. You know, uh, we're 
the average American is subjected to a constant stream of vitriol against Russia and President Putin. And if you just take the time to actually listen to the man, uh, you know, it, it's shocking to a lot of people I talk to, uh, those who do take the time to listen to his recent speeches. Uh, they're like, oh my God, you know, he, he's right about so many things. Uh, and he really does, uh, you know, size things up in a way that makes a lot more sense than many American leaders. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, would, I took great interest in uh, Putin's remarks and, uh, you know, I, I, it is hard to argue with him uh, about his assessment. Um, you know, one phrase that, you know, he talks about a lot and understandably so is this rules-based order. And, you know, if you're not paying close attention to statements by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and other, uh, you know, sort of American, uh, you know, political leaders and cabinet officials, uh, you can miss that phrase. But it's all over the rhetoric of uh, that, that you hear coming out of Washington. And what's very striking about it is, as Putin points out, it's so strikingly vague, you know. Well, there's a rule based, a rules based order, and Russia, in this particular case, in Ukraine, is allegedly in violation of these rules. Well, you know, I mean, nobody. It is true, nobody has ever articulated what these rules are, much less indicated why the United States, in particular, is in a position to dictate those rules to anyone else. Uh, it's just incredibly vague. It's kind of brilliant to say, well, there are rules and you know, you're breaking them. But, you know, if you can't say what they are and who's enforcing them, then are there really rules or is it just BS? Let me tell you, Ted, uh, uh, I have a, a person, one of my, followed me on one of my online channels who is in Nigeria who um, contacts me and we go back talk back and forth. I mean, you know, online, of course. And in their town, on Thursday nights at a church up the street from this person's house, they have a prayer meeting praying for Russia to win. <laughs> Literally. I had no idea. Now, I have reported on, you know, in Haiti and Mali and Niger and in all of these other places around where um, these people are um, – Literally, as they protest against imperialism and oftentimes the puppet governments or the coup governments they have, they're holding up Russia and China flags. And one of the things, the comments here by President Putin, they simply have nothing to offer the world except the preservation of their dominance. And it has never been as clear as it is with what's going on, the absolute destruction of Europe and the literal vicious attack on um, the European infrastructure. Your thoughts? Well, and let's not forget, you know, I mean, the, the you know the elephant in the room, like, you know, the mysteries of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, right? <laughs> I mean, which uh, supposedly, which the United States had the audacity to uh, suggest that Russia blew up their own billions of dollars worth of infrastructure. Uh, you know, it's absurd. Um, no, I mean, it's, I think, you know, anyone who's thoughtful uh, would have to, you know, uh, I, I don't know if prayer is going to make a difference, but would have to certainly hope for, uh, you know, a, a release from, uh, from, uh, of the hegemony of, of, of the United States, which has been so dominant in, uh, I would argue, the post-World War II era, 
and but certainly became super toxic after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, um, you know, I mean, uh, we need to definitely, you know, get rid of these ideas of American exceptionalism or dominance. Uh, we, you know, we need a world where really all countries are treated equally with respect um, and their interests are taken seriously and conflicts can be, uh, you know, negotiated and sorted out hopefully nonviolently before they explode into armed conflict, which is not where we are. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the NATO issue in, uh, you know, the expansion of this organization that really lost its reason to exist after 1991, uh, you know, into Eastern Europe and now into the former Soviet Union, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously aggressive, and this is the kind of thing that it shows incredible disrespect for Russia and its allies, and it's, uh, you know, it, and it's something that's not even discussed. So, I mean, you know, it doesn't agree. Taking other countries seriously is not about agreeing with everything they want. Uh, what it's about is about uh, understanding that what you want may come into conflict with someone else and that you are going to have to uh, to try to keep the peace, uh, be respectful to your adversaries and your opponents and other countries, and maybe even stop viewing them as adversaries, adversaries and opponents. There are two things here in this uh, RT piece, which, I, which is, a, uh, I think, a very good analysis of the speech. The piece is called No One Can Set Out the, the Coming Storm, Putin's Milestone Valdai Speech. On cancel culture, he says, believing themselves infallible, the rulers of the West desire to destroy or cancel those they dislike. And he, But more importantly, he says, Russia does not seek domination. He says there is another West. He talks about two Wests. There is another West, however, an aggressive, cosmopolitan, neocolonialist acting as a tool of neoliberal elites whose dictates Russia will never accept. And that line, whose dictates Russia will never accept, to me speaks volumes not only about the new power of this Russia, but also I hear uh, President Xi in China saying exactly the same thing. China will never accept these dictates. Your thoughts, Ted Rawl. Well, I, I think that's correct, and I think you're going to start to see other, uh, you know, regional, uh, um, I, I would say regional superpowers, for lack of a better word, um, like Iran and Brazil and India, assert, you know, begin, they've already begun to assert themselves more uh, and push back against this idea that the U.S., you know, for example, the U.S. kind of reserves the right rhetorically to decide which countries get to become nuclear powers or which countries get to be recognized as sovereign states. You know, a U.S. endorsement of a new country like South Sudan, for example, uh, ensures that, or East Timor, ensures, you know, quick approval uh, at the United Nations. I mean, who are we to decide something like that? I mean, why us? Whenever I ask that question, uh, nobody can really provide an answer other than, you know, we're so awesome. I mean, that's not an answer. Uh, you know, so it, it's also not particularly true. Uh, you know, and the cancel culture thing is worth thinking about. I mean, you know, it, it uh, think about like all the 
uh, Russian performers and musicians uh, who were banned from performing in the West, uh, not because they said they approved of Russia's actions in Ukraine, but because they were neutral about them and expressed no opinion, merely refusing to uh, serve as the mouthpiece of uh, Western politics, uh, is <laughs> refusing to do that, refusing to uh, you know, condemn their own country's actions, their own country's military. That was grounds to cancel their performances in the West. Um, yeah, that's pretty chilling. It's it's pretty it's pretty bad censorship. It's pretty gross, illiberal stuff. The thing about cancel culture also is there will be an inevitable pushback. And what also often ha- happens is the pushback, the uh, 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 for every revolution, there's a counter revolution. The pushback often is further than the original revolution, the counter revolution. So people who are in marginalized communities will be hurt worse by the pushback than the, you know, the cancel culture that's ostensibly to work in their behalf. Ted. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that is sort of the nature of things, right? I mean, it's everything's always a pendulum instead of finding a happy medium, you're just getting reaction to counter reaction to counter reaction. And you're right, things can absolutely get out of control. Uh, These, you know, the resentments build up and, and lead to an explosion. It's dangerous. We are standing at a historic milestone ahead of what is probably the most dangerous, unpredictable, and at the same time important decade since the end of World War II. The West is not able to single-handedly manage humanity, but is desperately trying to do it, and most of the peoples of the world no longer want to put up with it. I, I think it's it's important for people to not, Ted, to not only listen to what Putin is saying— but to look at the actions that are being taken. And if you understand those actions in context, Putin has been consistent for a number of years. This is not a guy who is basically, you know, uh, spouting rhetoric and whose actions are inconsistent with his rhetoric. This is a guy that has been warning the United States for a number of years about the actions that it's taking and how Russia views those actions to be threats. And if the United States does not heed his warnings, action will be taken. And dude is now stepping up to the plate and and following through on what he's been saying. Ted Rawl. Whatever you think of Vladimir Putin, there's one adjective that will never be accurately applied to him, and that's rash. Um, You know, this is a person who uh, is extremely deliberative, very careful, and very, really kind of very slow to act, right? Um, You know, he has been warning uh, really for the better part of a decade uh, or more that, uh, you know, these U.S. and Western provocations and pushing into uh, Russian border uh, regions and its traditional sphere of influence uh, was intolerable uh, and something that uh, that they needed to stop, or there was going to be trouble. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's amazing to me when uh, Americans uh, and apologists for the United States talk about uh, the United, talk about Russia's aggressiveness. You know, look at a map at every military movement made under the Soviet and post-Soviet eras by by the Russian Federation, and compare that to the same era 
under the United States. And there's just absolutely no comparison. You can say the same thing about China, too. I mean, you know, Russia and, and, and China are, and Iran are not militarily aggressive countries. Um, you know, it's the United States, it, it's way over the top in terms of its proxy wars, its direct invasions, its 800 plus military bases around the world. I mean, you know, Russia's not up in our grill, but we're up in <laughs> theirs and we're acting like we're the, like we're the victims. Mm. Ted Rawl, that's a great way to close. <laughs> to, that's a great piece of of, uh, of 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 analysis right there, using the common parlance, as they would say. Uh, <laughs> appreciate it, Ted. And uh, as always, we look forward to having you back. Thank you, folks. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. U.S. considers stepping up drone strikes in Somalia. The U.S.-backed Somali government has asked for Washington to loosen restrictions on carrying out airstrikes. According to a report from The New York Times, the U.S. is considering expanding drone strikes in Somalia after a request was made by the U.S.-backed Mogadishu-based government. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History in African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He is one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So the Somali government has asked the U.S. to loosen restrictions on drone strikes so more can be carried out against al-Shabaab under the current policy that was recently formalized by President Biden. Strikes in Somalia need to be justified as in defense of partner forces or they need to be approved by the White House. Speak to that, Dr. Horn, and also speak to it in the context of the United States has its shorts all in a bunch because Russia has been using drones in Ukraine and allegedly been buying the drones from Iran and drones have been used in, in, in Yemen. So it seems as though the United States anti-drone policy has a few holes in it, Dr. Gerald Horn. Well, I think we need to look at this question of Somalia with more care and attention than we would ordinarily in light of recent events. What I'm suggesting is that with the downturn in relations with Saudi Arabia, just across the Red Sea from Somalia, that puts more emphasis on this Somalia question because now we have to begin to try to think two steps ahead of U.S. imperialism and think that perhaps U.S. imperialism wants to establish a foothold in Somalia in order to gain leverage against Saudi Arabia. And here reference what I take to be a credible speculation 
that Washington is quite upset with the Saudi regime, would not necessarily be opposed to some sort of regime change in light of the fact that the Saudis have not been necessarily compliant when it comes to jerking the price of a barrel of oil in the direction that Washington would want. Likewise, with regard to the Horn of Africa, where Somalia is located, it's no secret that Washington is quite concerned with the incursions that the People's Republic of China has made in that part of Africa. Uh, that is to say that the China, as you know, is well ensconced in Djibouti, not to mention Ethiopia itself. And so that puts further emphasis on what the U.S. role in Somalia is projected to be. And then, of course, we already know, looking historically, that Washington has had a decided, dedicated interest in Somalia going back decades to the time when Somalia had a more credible government, speaking of the government of Siad Barre in the late 80s, early 1990s, which ran aground because Siad Barre basically drunk the Kool-Aid and decided to wage war against neighboring uh, Ethiopia, which led to the downfall and the decline of both regimes. And I should also say that in terms of present-day Somalia, I should also link this speculation about regime change in Saudi Arabia with like regime change in Turkey. Now, how does Turkey fit into it? Well, we already know that Washington is upset with the fact that Turkey has increased trade with Russia as opposed to uh, decreasing trade with Russia in light of Ukraine but also that Turkey is basically the power behind the throne in Mogadishu uh, in terms of doing everything from providing security at the airport to picking up the garbage. And so if Washington is able to put its claws and its talons more deeper into the flesh of Somalia, uh, perhaps that can be used as leverage against Turkey as well. So once again, I think we have to pay more careful and close attention to Somalia than we might ordinarily in light of the developments of 2022, that is to say, uh, Turkey's involvement with Russia in light of Ukraine and Saudi Arabia's involvement with Russia in light of oil prices. And what I think is a, a related story, responsible statecraft, Joseph Burrell's jungle trope was no slip of the tongue. EU's foreign policy su chief suggests Europe has to unite to tame what's outside its own tidy garden, raising awkward colonial connotations. Dr. Horn. Well, yes, this is a story that has legs, and I think it's understandable why it does, because it basically suggested that Mr. Burrell has lost control of the plot. That is to say, at a moment when the North Atlantic powers are being challenged by the rising tide led by China and Russia and BRICS, you hear this echo of the 1930s in the rather odious remarks of Mr. Burrell. And Mr. Burrell should obviously uh, do more in terms of, of an apology than he has. Because certainly in light of the recent elections in Brazil, with Lula da Silva of the Workers' Party apparently coming back to power, uh, there is going to be a decided shift 
in Brazilian foreign policy, you might pay careful and close attention to the statement made by Beijing in light of Lula's victory, uh, basically uh, promising a deepening of relations. And then you have the consolidation of a leftist bloc from Mexico heading southward uh, through Central America, through South America, through Brazil to Argentina. And these are nations that are quite uh, favorable to this China-led bloc, uh, to the BRICS, which, by the way, was basically inaugurated by Brazil, in, in case you want to check the history. And so Mr. Burrell's remarks rang very oddly in light of what's going on. And I think it reflects the kind of off-kilter hysteria that's afflicting many countries in the North Atlantic bloc who are finding it difficult to adapt to a new international situation where they are not automatically in the driver's seat. You mentioned in uh, your last answer possible regime change in Saudi Arabia. Would that be the removal of Mohammed bin Salman, or would that be the removal of the entire Saud family since MBS's name is Mohammed bin Salman al Saud? I think it would be more towards the former, although once you begin to interfere in the internal affairs of sovereign states, it's, it's, it's unclear where it might lead to, and it could lead ultimately to the destabilization of the entire Saud family, although I don't think that that's the intention, because it's no secret that MBS has many internal foes. Mm-hmm. You recall what happened during the Trump administration when he invited many close relatives uh, to a meeting ostensibly in Saudi Arabia, and then they were all locked up in a hotel until they coughed up assets that supposedly were going to developments of the nation. But lo and behold, it was not long after that that he bought a half-billion-dollar yacht, uh, began to buy uh, homes and mansions uh, in the French Riviera. And so he has many internal enemies within the family, amongst fellow princes, amongst fellow cousins. So it shouldn't be that difficult for MBS to slip on a banana peel. And, by the way, pay attention to the fact that he did not attend an important meeting of Arab leaders in Algeria just a few days ago, supposedly on doctor's orders. (laughs) I read that story. (laughs) Yeah, the doctor said you might get shot. (laughs) Exactly. So uh, Mr. MBS might want to watch his back, and he may want to check on where some of his fellow princes have been traveling lately. All of this conversation about the Saud family just makes me think about, wasn't it former President Bush who was euphemistically referred to as one of the one of the Sauds or was it was it H.W.? I thought it was his dad. Well, it was both, actually. But certainly the second Bush was known as very close to uh, Prince Bandar, you may recall. Band- right. Bandar yes. Bush. There we go. They called him right. Bandar Bush. And 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 that came to mind because I'm just trying to see, and, and, and I'm, I'm asking you probably an impossible question, but you're the one to ask. Whatever happened to that relationship in, in terms of how, how the United States was with the Saudis then with Bandar Bush and where we are today? Well, I think that the ground has moved 
beneath our feet. That is to say, international relations have changed. Uh, with the relation with uh, George uh, W. Bush, that was the time of the so-called unipolar moment uh, when the United States was bestriding the planet like a colossus. Uh, those days are long gone. Mm-hmm. And obviously, when you see MBS begin to put feelers out for joining BRICS, that was the import of the meeting of South African President Cyril Ramaphosa to Saudi Arabia just a few days ago. And the world has changed, and the Saudis are trying to adapt and adjust. Mm -hmm. But Washington, of course, is a very jealous lover. It believes in uh, monogamy with regard to its partners, but polygamy with regard (laughs) to itself. And, uh, of course, the United States, that's hardly surprising. We've got a couple minutes left, but I think this is important. Ethiopia nears victory in its civil war. U.S. scrambles to control the outcome. Well, as you know, peace talks are taking place in South Africa as we speak. Peace talks involving not only the African Union, but the United States as an observer, interestingly enough, and also with mediators of the Uhuru Kenyatta, former leader of Kenya, and President Obasanjo, the former president, I should say, of of Nigeria. The, The problem for Washington, it seems to me, is that the speculation is is that Washington is upset with the Addis Ababa regime, and therefore it's put its money on the Tigrayan rebels. But the Tigrayan rebels are only 6% of the population, and even though they ruled the country for decades up until about 2018, it seems to me not to be a very wise bet to bet on them nowadays, particularly in light of the fact that the Addis Ababa regime, in light of its, once again, being able to uh, buy a parcel of drones, has been able to push back effectively against the Tigrayan rebels to the point now where it would not surprise me if the latter were forced to say uncle. We've got 30 seconds when you uh, look at uh, former uh, Nigerian President Obasanjo at the negotiating table. Whose interests do you perceive him to be representing? we got 30 seconds. It's hard to say. I mean, President Obasanjo is a respected figure, but it's no secret that Nigeria generally is in the pocket of Washington. And so you could say the same thing for Uhuru Kenyatta, for that matter. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's hard to say. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for uh, your analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Mint Press has a piece entitled, Shocking Details of Zionist Biological Warfare Against Palestinians Exposed. Academics Benny Morris of Ben-Gurion University and Benjamin Kadar of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem have produced an extraordinary paper based on a welter of archival material exposing in disturbing detail the hitherto obfuscated dimensions of an operation by Zionist forces to use chemical and biological weapons against both invading Arab armies and local civilians during the 1948 war. What are we to make of this? 
Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an award-winning broadcaster, journalist, and analyst based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So the piece continues the prospect of using biological weapons against the quote-unquote enemy had been uh, percolating among the Zionist movement for some time come the 1948 war. Three years earlier, immediately after the end of the war in Europe, Crimea-born Jewish partisan leader and poet Abba Kovner had, after reaching Palestine, hatched a plot to mass poison Nazis to avenge the Holocaust. Laith, this again begs the question, how can people who were subjected to what they were subjected to uh, during the Holocaust then turn around and use the same tactics on other people? Yeah, because we have to differentiate, obviously, between the innocent Jewish Europeans that, uh, you know, experienced the Holocaust and survived it, and the majority of Zionists who were already in Palestine and outside in uh, areas that are controlled by uh, the, the Nazis. Okay, so what we have here is a settler colonial uh, project and, and movement that is not any different than any of the other settler colonial movements that the that Europe had birthed in terms of its genocidal intentions uh, to uh, remove indigenous people from their land and loot their resources and, and property. And in the situation of Palestine, it's also looting the culture, uh, the ethnicity, the religion itself, which is, as Judaism is a patrimony heritage of the Arab uh, people and their ancestors. So, uh, you know, to, to see, you know, finally, an Israeli uh, academic and uh, newspapers admitting what for, uh, you know, 70 somewhat years, all the Palestinian researchers uh, and historians have been saying that the Israelis uh, used chemical warfare during the 1947-48 war, that they ethnically cleansed, that they genocide, they raped, they killed children, they uh, committed so many massacres that are uh, historically recorded by the Palestinians, uh, quote to quote. And, and, you know, it is, uh, while it is, uh, feels good that sometimes, once in a while, the Zionist publications, the Zionist uh, academics like Benny Morris, actually publish uh, uh, as, uh, affirmations of what already has been said by Palestinians, it is time for the rest of the world outside the Zionist colony to begin to accept the word of Palestinian people and their academics and their researchers and their historians and their archivists and do not wait for affirmation from Zionists to or to those truths, uh, because it's that only re-emphasizes Jewish white supremacy. Um, and I think this article, next article, goes along perfectly with that. Because when I read read that article and I see what it says, it, it's obvious to me they did not view and do not view Palestinian people as humans with human rights. The next article, and it's in uh, alarabia.com. 
or .co. <clears throat> Amnesty International has applauded the UN Special Rapporteur on the right to adequate housing for recognizing that Israel is committing the crime of apartheid against Palestinians in a damning report. On Friday, Special Rapporteur Balarikshnan Rajagopal presented an adequate housing report to the UN General Assembly, which condemned Israel for overseeing a, quote, institutionalized regime of systematic racial oppression and discrimination against the people of Palestine. Laith. Yeah, there's practically right now no human rights organization on this planet uh, and or UN agency that hasn't accepted that Israel is an apartheid state built on and maintained through Jewish white supremacy. And, uh, you, you know, the more these files pile up, the harder and harder it's going to be to become for the mainstream media in the West and the politicians in the in this imperial domain to deny this. Uh, now, you know, we see clearly the American and Canadian and British media refusing to accept this truth. And in fact, uh, they are libeling and, uh, you know, uh, defaming anyone who uh, actually says that Israel is an apartheid state or brings uh, a mention of the uh, Jewish supremacy that is, you know, in the backbone of this apartheid. So, uh, what where, where we at is is at this standstill where the whole Western society, their elite structures are refusing the, to accept the facts that the whole world has accepted, and this is turning to a situation where in in like countries like Canada where where I am, uh, the state is openly accepting now theocracy. And so is the in media in Canada. They are openly, uh, you know, uh, you cannot criticize Zionism. It's you can you can defame and misrepresent uh, any religion or prophet you want on this planet in Canada or the United States or the UK. But dare you touch Zionism and the weight of the state would come on you. And that clearly shows that Canada and, other, and these Western countries have a state religion, and that religion is Zionism. I want to take a step back to the to the story on uh, biological warfare. And when I finished reading that story, it made me think about the United States and its nuclear program and how now the United States is traversing the world and with his hair on fire, screaming that, you know, Russia has threatened to use nuclear uh, weapons and uh, the United States was meeting in Japan and uh, saying point blank that the United States will use nuclear weapons if necessary. And the point is, the only country to do that is the United States. And so I just thought about the United States with his holier-than-thou position on this issue. And in fact, the U.S. is the only country to use nuclear weapons. And this whole biological weapons story in terms of the Zionist colony of Israel planning to use nuclear um, biological weapons against Palestinians. It just made me think, I saw parallels there. That That's my point. Look, you see, I'm glad that you brought this up because just today at the United Nations, there was a vote at the General Assembly to about uh, declaring 
the uh, Middle East, quote-unquote, as a nuclear-free zone. And in this vote, it uh, in this motion, it ordered the Zionist colony to open all its uh, facilities to be uh, inspected by the International Atomic A- uh, Energy Agency and to hand over its uh, 200 somewhat weapons that everybody presumes nuclear heads that it owns. And the whole world voted for it, uh, except five countries. And that is Israel, the United States, two uh, islands in the uh, ocean, on the (laughs) Pacific Ocean, and Canada. Not even the United Kingdom voted against it. The United Kingdom abstained. New Zealand voted for Canada, which is, you know, obviously a a, a hostage of the United <laughs> States. It doesn't have any control of its the major resources or its uh, foreign policy. It's just a, a city hall that collects tax. That's what the government of Canada is. Uh, you know, shamelessly voted against this with the United States and Israel. It's the only one of the Anglo colonies. The other thing is that uh, about uh, all this uh, uh, talking about the chemical weapons that the Israelis and biological warfare that they use against the Palestinians, it is important to remember that the Zionists kept on keep on talking about being pushed into the sea. And in the truth of the matter, no one was that none of the Jews, quote-unquote, Zionists, Israelis, were under the threat of total annihilation. It was always the Palestinians that were under that threat and actually lived that. The expulsion of 800,000 Palestinians from what became the Zionist colony uh, in 1948 is, is, is unparalleled. The Palestinians are the largest... Uh, refugee population in the world till today. And hundreds of thousands were killed, massacred, raped. There was women that were lined up that were pregnant and had their bellies, uh, you know, uh, punctured uh, in 1948. And this happened, of course, also in the refugee camps in Lebanon. This happened in Gaza every time we see the mass killing uh, sprees that Israel uh, conducts on Palestine. So no, I, I, Israel is a genocidal white supremacist colony, uh, a, a beachhead in the Arab world. Quickly on the on the nuclear point, it's important for people to understand that there's all of this fear and all of this concern about Iran and a nuclear bomb, but Israel does have nuclear weapons, but they are not a signatory to the non-proliferation uh, treaty and Iran allows the IAEA inspectors in, Israel does not. Exactly. Uh, Two quick articles I'll put together. British police custody black deaths. Uh, So right now um, there's been um, marches going on and activists because of a a black person, a black guy, man that died in police custody. In uh, the U.S., they don't even get in custody. They kill them on the street before they get there. But yet the United States is going to the U.N. preaching about a person who on video collapsed of natural causes, it certainly appears to be. And but with with what's going on in the U.S., what's going on in the in the, in the U.K., we see this uh, hypocrisy. Your thoughts? Yeah, definitely. The situation in Iran, uh, of course, you know, none, no state and no police force on this uh, planet is perfect, and uh, all of them have their issues and and so forth. Uh, but clearly, 
the way we see the lives of people uh, around this world uh, that are used as a football uh, kicking match uh, and their human rights are used in such ways by the United States, the glaring uh, hypocrisy that we see when we talk about uh, black uh, lives in the United States and the police and similarly in the UK and Canada, by the way, that it has a huge problem with how it treats its indigenous and um, black uh, and Arab uh, youth in the streets. Um, I mean, Canada, for hell's sake, uh, some of you, your listeners don't even probably know this, but uh, in the province of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it was uh, the police force uh, was famous uh, for uh, taking any indigenous man that they see on the street, um, taking them, driving them outside the city limits and taking their jackets and shoes in the middle of winters, which is uh, minus 40 Celsius degrees in Saskatchewan, uh, and telling them to walk back home if they if they can. This was called Starlight Tours. Uh, the, you know, it's, it's, it's a given a good name. And hundreds of indigenous uh, men died freezing to death. And none, not one police officer had to go to jail. And it's still ongoing, these starlight tours in Canada of mm. indigenous men. Uh, so we're, we're, you know, Canada, the West, and Canada, by the way, today, uh, Trudeau was out in the streets with the Iranian uh, uh, Canadian and, and Israeli Canadian, Zionist Canadian demonstrators, uh, you know, going after Iran. So here we have a country that is, mistreating it's uh, all the West that is mistreating its minorities and indigenous peoples uh, have no say mm-hmm. in what is happening in Iran. Laith Maroof, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis and we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You too. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Common Dreams has a piece. Haitians, peace activists denounce plan for another U.S.-backed intervention. Haitians are saying no to armed invasions from the international community because every time there is the so-called help invasion, it results in chaos. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a journalist and editor at Haiti. Liberté, Kim Ives. Kim, welcome to The Critical Hour. Thank you, Wilma. Thank you, Garland. So this U.S.-backed intervention, coupled with a report from The Hill, White House ways holding future Haitian migrants at Guantanamo facility, and I'll say again, folks need to remember the last time Haitians were held in cages at Camp X-Ray, what we now know to be Guantanamo Bay. And let me say, Kim, I went to Camp X-Ray after the Haitians were released, but I saw the conditions under which they were held, and it was 
basically large dog runs. I mean, it was just cyclone fences with concrete slabs, no protection from the sun, and it gets hot. I mean, brutally hot at Camp X-Ray, Kim Ives. Yeah, it's uh, history repeating itself all over again, as they say. And um, yeah, like you say, that is one uh, hot spot the the sun bakes you. I mean, I've often said that Haiti is always the vanguard nation, the first independent nation of Latin America, the touchstone for all the liberation on the continent. Uh, 1990s, Jean-Bertrand Aristide was the first president of the pink tide, we could say. But also Haitians were the first to be imprisoned at Guantanamo. They, they started it all in 1991 when the George Bush administration started sweeping them off the ocean as they fled the September 30th, 1991 coup d'etat, which, by the way, is also in complete contravention of all uh, maritime laws, but the U.S. gave itself the right to intercept boats on the high seas, which they don't have the right, but they did. They intercepted them and stuck them in tents on the tarmac under that terrible sun uh, at Guantanamo. And then gradually they built all the, all the other camps. I visited Camp Buckley, which was where they kept HIV positive prisoners. That was the COVID of the day, HIV. They wouldn't let them into the U.S. because they were HIV positive, supposedly. And uh, we went down there on a delegation with Jesse Jackson and others. And it was uh, just abominable, the conditions. They tried to present it as beautiful. But, uh, you know, I mean, uh, it, it was hell on earth. And, you know, when I look at that happening, when I look at, you know, recently, uh, and, and it just sticks in my mind, the United States said, we're going to take in 100,000 Ukrainian ref- refugees at the same time we had just weeks before witnessed pictures of Haitian refugees at the border literally being beaten with whips. And they didn't even get the opportunity to apply for refugee status as international law mandates. They were just thrown on a plane Took back, taken back to Haiti and shoved off when, in fact, the reason they were eligible for uh, a refugee status because was because of the U.S.'s actions on their uh, against their nations. Kim, exactly, and you take you know what it's in a in a blink of an eye that they authorized fifty four billion dollars to go uh, to support the NATO proxy war against Russia and Ukraine, and yet. Here to you know to put clean water in Haiti and eliminate the cholera problem, it costs about two billion bucks. They could easily subsidize the gas, same way it's subsidized here, uh, and you know Haitians could have affordable gas. Right now, gas is selling on the black market on the street at thirty bucks a gallon. Uh, you can imagine, yeah. And Haitians who make five dollars a day, those who have a job in the U.S. sweatshops uh, near the uh, industrial park. So you cannot, um, you know, uh, fathom the, the the incredible hypocrisy of, uh, you know, the only only thing they can do is intervene militarily. You know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so they're trying to now 
you know, bring in the troops instead of just sending some uh, uh, pocket change, if you will, for Haitians to have a better life. Could you, Kim, could you elaborate on this point? I, I think every time Haiti is discussed, I think it's imperative that people understand that the United States is now on the international stage trying to solve a problem that it created. When you talk about the cholera problem, the U.S. Army, I believe, caused that cholera problem in Haiti by dumping Army waste human feces into the water system. The United States caused that problem. When we look at the the, the, the unrest on the island right now, that's due to anti-democratic policies and processes that were started by and reinforced by the United States. So the United States has gone to the U.N., trying to circumvent the U.N. to bring an international force to Haiti. And from what I read, trying to find another country to lead the effort. Under So it's, they're trying to find a beard or they're trying to find a mask for, for, the United, for the United States to intervene militarily. It's a problem the U.S. has caused. Yes, exactly. Well, for cholera, just it was Technically, it was the Nepalese troops, uh, oh, okay. a, a contingent from Nepal, which was in a base up in Mirabale, which is at the headwaters of the Artibonite River, Haiti's largest river. And their outhouses basically leaked into those headwaters and it went downstream and spread to the entire country. But it, in, 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 techni- in fact, you are right, because it was the U.S. Government who put those Nepalese and Jordanians and okay. uh, Pakistanis and Sri Lankans, you know, in Haiti. Why? Because they cost half the price of a of a U.S. Marine. So they they ended up using the U.N. as a proxy force. But they have a problem today to do it because now that we live in a multipolar world since February 24th, uh, Russia and China are not going along with the game anymore, and they're putting the kibosh on uh, U.N military intervention under chapter seven. So now the U.S. is trying to sneak around it by saying, okay, uh, we don't have to have a U.N. peacekeeping force there, but at least deputize somebody, but, you know, outsource it to uh, Canada in this case. That seems to be their principal candidate. And they'll go in, you know, maybe with Bahamas or St. Lucia or some other countries and uh, as using them as a fig leaf to basically establish the U.S. regime. And this should be it should be said, Wilmer, is within the framework of what they call the Global Fragility Act. This hasn't gotten enough attention because it's a um, uh, act that was ratified under Trump in 2019, December 2019, total bipartisan support. And essentially what it does is it weds uh, the humanitarian aid arm of the U.S. State Department called the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. Many people have heard of it with the Pentagon. So here you are going to bring in uh, U.S. troops supposedly bringing humanitarian aid uh, you know, these sacks of rice with a gift of the American people emblazoned on it. And 
this is their new formula, bilateral arrangement. And those troops would be there for 10 years under this Global Fertility Act. Haiti is the pilot case. It's the test case. Their big problem is they don't have a government, a legitimate government, to do the inviting because the guy who's in there is just appointed by the core group, a Washington-based group of uh, uh, ambassadors. And now they're trying to slip it in through the U.N. So the U.N., would do the role of saying, yeah, there'll be a bilateral agreement. They'll bring in whatever force it is. But essentially, that's the way they'll get the Global Fragility Act started and get their U.S. base in Haiti. Orinoco Tribune has an article, No to U.S.-UN Intervention and Sanctions in Haiti, Revolution Time. And when you go down, they say, our job is to rip the masks off imperialism, not to support lies. Uh, your thoughts? Totally. Uh, yeah, the, the narrative that's out there, and unfortunately, uh, many people in the progressive movement have been uh, taken in by it, is that it's gangs, you know, this, this moniker they put essentially on uh, what um, Engels or, or Lenin would have called the, the self-acting armed organization of the population. <laughs> These are the um, groups uh, that have emerged in shantytowns. Basically, the U.S. has debilitated the Haitian state since 30 years ago when Jean-Bertrand Aristide came to power. And they said, boy, we have to stop that. We're going to just, you know, shrink them down. And yeah, they did it. But now what's emerged are, in fact, criminal gangs in some parts of Haiti. But in response to that have been these armed neighborhood committees, what they used to be called vigilance brigades after the fall of the Duvalier regime. And they have federated themselves into a thing called the G9. And this is scaring the daylights out of Washington and the Haitian bourgeoisie because they are demanding a social revolution, not just, you know, change of the president or government. They want to change the ownership of the means of production. They're saying, listen, bourgeoisie, you're done. We're taking over your factories, your grocery stores, your ports, your gas stations. It's going to the hands of the people. And they are scared out of their mind by uh, Jimmy Cherizier Barbecue, who's a very articulate and charismatic spokesman of this movement. And, uh, you know, they're demonizing him. And th th that's the irony of the sanctions the Security Council put on Haiti last week was they, they, they sanctioned one man in Haiti. He's responsible for all of Haiti's problems, uh, Jimmy Cherizier, not Ariel Henry, the, the prime minister they put in, or any of the real criminal uh, gang leaders, uh, but, you know, this guy who is leading the popular response and possibly a social revolution in Haiti. So to that point, and this is from uh, Insight Crime, former police officer Jimmy Cherizet, alias Barbecue, is one of Haiti's most important gang leaders. He's known for establishing the G9 and family, uh, a criminal federation of nine of the strongest gangs in Haiti's capital. Elaborate a little bit more on how this description or how this narrative of him uh, is incorrect. Yeah, well, I would begin by saying that's the USAID-supported insight crime, mm -hmm. uh, NED-funded insight crime. And yes, the idea is they conflate 
the criminal gangs, of which there are criminal gangs, and the anti-criminal gangs, the anti-crime federation. They put them all. It's as if we were to say the Ku Klux Klan and the Black Panthers are both gangs. So we're going to fight against both of them. You know, it's it's that kind of conflation. Uh, and it, it it's basically taking opposites and putting them in the same bag and saying, yeah, the great white knight of the U.S. military Pentagon war machine is going to come in and save them from this very situation we created. And that actually goes back to your previous question. Yes, this whole situation has been created by U.S. neoliberal reform of the Haitian state over the past four decades. I did want to ask you about Cuba. We've got an article, Peace Groups Say Let Cuba Live at U.S. Rallies Ahead of U.N. Vote on Anti-Embargo Resolution. Yeah, well, yeah, this is... (laughs) This is, of course, one of the motive forces behind their support of um, the, the, the coup regime uh, in Haiti, uh, because that's what we can really call the government of Ariel Henry, a coup regime. They want to stop the spread of the Cuban example uh, uh, westward, because, again, if you look at the Caribbean, if you look at the um, map, you see there's that belt of countries going across Cuba. Haiti, Dominican Republic, and then Puerto Rico. And these are all highly flammable right now, especially Puerto Rico. And so uh, Cuba is uh, really being uh, targeted to, uh, you know, be demonized in the same way. And uh, I think for sure the uh, world has shown uh, that year after year they vote against this embargo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet there's two countries that always vote uh, for it, and that's the U.S. and Israel. Kim Ives, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks, Wilmer. Thank you, Carlin. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Britons face more austerity, weaker rights under Sunak. Rishi Sunak's policy history and cabinet appointments have raised fears of even more benefit cuts and a drastic curtailing of basic rights, according to Tunapriya Singh. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist, analyst, and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War. Dan Lazar, as always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So uh, Tunapriya Singh writes, quote, at a time when over 11 million people in the UK are expected to fall into fuel poverty and thousands are going hungry, the wealthiest member of the House of Commons has been appointed prime minister 
end quote. Dan, the elite's policies in Britain are causing considerable hardship and distress, and now they're implementing austerity measures in an attempt to right the ship. This sounds eerily familiar, not only to U.S. policy, but I think what was implemented in Italy, what they imposed in Greece, what the ruling elite are trying to impose across the globe. Dan Lazar. Yeah, things are falling apart in Britain in a in a in a major way. There's no doubt about it. I mean, Sunak, first of all, is an immensely rich person. I think his his wealth is valued somewhere around uh, eight hundred million dollars. So he's not quite a billionaire, but he's close. And his wife's family actually is a billionaire. Uh, and uh, and interestingly enough, he um, uh, his wife's family does business with the British government, so there's a uh, there's a very serious conflict of interest uh, at work there. Um, and and Sunak uh, was seriously embarrassed when it turned out that his wife uh, had taken had taken advantage had engineered a tax dodge that enabled her to say to save something like. 25 million pounds in uh, in tax payments. Uh, it nearly destroyed his career, uh, and uh, and both uh, both husband and wife are forced to uh, reverse you know that policy and apologize. Um, but there's no doubt that Sunak is from the upper 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 crust, uh, and that he is taking over the government at a time when. British Britain Britain is really going through an economic crunch, and it seems quite clear that the people who will have to pay for that crunch will be the British working class, uh, and they will have to pay. They'll be squeezed really hard, even though their fortunes have suffered uh, tremendously since the uh, 2008 financial crash. And those of the upper class, the ruling class, have benefited uh, enormously as well. So the the losers got to pay more, and the winners going to win more. Dan, it seems to me when I look at the, what's going on in um, in the U.S., when I look at our economy, I look at what's happening in Europe, I look at the type of people, Macron, a Rothschild banker, you know, uh, uh, a former Goldman Sachs guy here and Rishi Sunak, it seems to me that neoliberalism, the last, you know, since 1980, maybe even the, seven, the 70s, you could argue, has accelerated, compounded and amplified the glaring contradictions of capitalism to a point where this thing has kind of hit a crescendo and it's just, it seems like it's washing ashore. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, I think neoliberalism can be understood in many ways, but I think that most fundamentally, um, it represents a looting of society and a huge income transfer from the working class up to the, uh, to the, the ruling class, the, the ultra wealthy. Um, I mean, for example, Following the 2008 financial meltdown, uh, the Federal Reserve under Ben Bernanke uh, just opened up the flood floodgates. Uh, uh, just you know, um, flooded the uh, the the financial markets with uh, with liquidity, uh, easy money, um, and what was the result? The result was that the financial markets went wild. They just zoomed, um, and then real estate went wild. Uh, and it zoomed, and meanwhile, homelessness multiplied, and the average working class family found itself spending a greater and greater portion of its income to keep a a roof over its head. 
Um, you know, and this has reached really extreme proportions where families are paying 50% or even more of their take-home pay uh, on rent, leaving very little over. Uh, but it's either that or wind up on the streets. So, so what was you know what was you know what benefited the financial markets was at the cost of the of the of the of the living standard in the most basic sense of the working class, um, and we've seen the same process in a dozen other ways. I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, investment has been robbed, benefits have been taken away, wages have been stagnant while profits have zoomed, etc., uh, etc. Et and now that the crunch is upon us, um, essentially. The, the the remedy from people like Rishi Sunak is even more of the same. You know, let's transfer more money from the working class to the upper class. Uh, let's 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 make the working class pay through its nose, while you know uh, while while Sunak's friends and friends and Goldman Sachs you know you know draw ever heftier end of the year bonuses. Uh, it's it's. It's poor ethics, but it's also poor economics as well because it's not going to work. And that's also you, – you've just given, I think, a very good summary of, of another piece that we were going to talk about, the geopolitics of inequality. The geopolitics of inequality persist, writes Vijay Prashad, even though industrial production have, has moved from the global north to the global south. And, and he starts his piece – by talking about chaos reigns in the United Kingdom where the prime minister's residence in London has seen the entry of Rishi Sunak, one of the richest men in the country. He talks about the failure of Liz Truss, but then goes on to give a broader analysis of the geopolitical impact that this is having. Yeah. Uh, well, yes. I mean, the, the impacts are profound. I mean, I mean, the problem is that not only not only do we have inflation, but we also have a uh, a huge appreciation of the U.S. dollar, which is the you know which is the international currency uh, in which most um, most international transactions are are tabulated. Uh, so therefore, um, for other countries in the world, especially the very poorest, it's a double hit because not only does inflation go up. But the dollar goes up means that ordinary commodities, I'm talking about, you know, wheat, uh, 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 cooking oil, fuel, et cetera, they go up twice as much. Mm -hmm. um, so they are really reeling under the impact. And, and I'm talking about, you know, but devastation to countries in Africa, uh, Somalia, um, uh, Sri Lanka, et cetera. Um, and the funny thing about Britain is that Britain now has a whiff of Sri Lanka about it. I mean, there really was, you know, there really were the first uh, sightings of a failed state, a failed political system. Rishi Sunak is now trying to 
to right the ship, but we'll see, you know, if he's able to do it. I doubt very much he will be. And on whose backs is he trying to do it? Right. And here's the thing. He's willing to do everything. You know, they got a hole in the ship. They're willing to do everything but plug the hole. So they're willing to do everything but to deal with the truth. And the Russia sanctions are driving up energy costs and wiping out Europe. That being said, Czech protesters rail against inflation sanctions and the Ukraine proxy war. Here's what I think is interesting, Dan. And I'm sure there's a reason for it, and I'm sure you can figure it out. Eastern Europe, Moldova, the poorest country in Europe, right? Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia, the countries in Europe that have the least are the ones that seem to be exploding first. It seems counterintuitive to me because I would think that the ones that have the furthest to fall would. But I guess if you don't have much, you really can't afford to lose much. At any rate, your thoughts on the Moldovas, the Czechoslovakias, the Eastern Europe countries with the least seeming to explode first in this in this mess. Well, Czechoslovakia seems to be especially unstable. Uh, um, and uh, you know, I'm not an expert on Czech politics, but I know, you know Czechoslovakia, first of all, split in two in 1993. Um, second of all, it's while there's certainly a strong anti-Russian uh, uh, current in the country, there's also a very strong pro-Russian current in the country. So you see a lot of sympathy with Russia uh, as well as a great deal of antipathy. But uh, I, look, at the storm is already hitting France. It's hitting, uh, it's hitting Britain in a political way. It's hitting Germany as well. It's not going to stop. It's going to keep on going. And countries like Sweden, once that, once that, were, that were bywords of stability, now suddenly are behaving like you know, like like a like you know like like as if they were in the Mediterranean and they were they were, they were chronically unstable. Um, we're going to see more and more of this stuff because the economy is the economies are are turning upside down and political systems are as well and and there there's none that's going to be that 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 will be left uh, unaffected by this whole process. In this piece, uh, Connor Freeman writes, the rally, this rally in Czech Republic, saw tens of thousands of citizens condemning their government's support for Kiev, including the provision of heavy weapons as well as sanctions on Russia. A couple of things. One, the size. Tens of thousands of citizens. We're seeing this in Germany. We're seeing this in Great Britain. We're seeing this all over Europe. Tens of that we're seeing it in France. Tens of thousands of people protesting the actions taken uh, by their government, and what also is now happening is this coalition of the willing, as as Biden likes to call, uh, you know, his his coalitions. Coalition of the chilling now. <laughs> the coalition of the chilling and the hungry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the tide is turning, seriously turning, as we've been talking about. As winter comes, folks are not going to be happy. They're going to be hungry and they're going to be cold and they won't accept the rationalization of Putin's price hike. Your thoughts, Dan Lazar? Absolutely. I, I mean, first of all, number, I'm, number one, uh, Italy Italy already has a neo-fascist government, but a, but a government, a neo-fascist government that is deeply torn between its Atlanticist, i.e. its pro-NATO wing and its Russian sympathizing wing. Uh, um, in, uh, in Sweden, the fascists are just like, you no, know, just ruling from uh, making their, their, 
their weight felt, although they're still being kept a bit off stage. One of the most serious developments is the widening rift between France and Germany. Mm-hmm. I mean, that partnership, this is the core of the EU, the core of NATO. Um, and yet the, 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 they're, 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 the alliance, that, that partnership is coming apart. Uh, uh, Olaf Scholz is making a, a trip to, to, uh, to China this week that the U.S. and the French are extremely upset about. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the New York Times is running articles slamming Schultz as an unreliable member of the Western alliance. Um, and, uh, and, and, and clearly the, the Germans are wondering, you know, where this all went. There was a, there was a fascinating uh, quote last week in the Times article about Germany um, where, you know, uh, some, some expert at some, some think tank in Germany said, like, no, they said for, for generations, German policy has been predicated on the belief that things would get better for each successive generation. Mm-hmm. Now it looks like that is no longer the case. Correct. What the hell happened <laughs> and what the hell does it mean? I mean, a Germany that thinks it's reached a dead end. Well, we saw what happened when this occurred last time. Right. We don't want to see it again, right? Dan Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. What to expect as the Supreme Court examines Harvard and University of North Carolina affirmative action policies? The Supreme Court will hear oral arguments today in two cases centered on whether private or public colleges may consider race as a factor in college admissions. And this uh, they're, they're hearing two cases. One has to do with Harvard. One has to do with UNC. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. She's the president and founder of the Transformative Justice Coalition and internationally renowned for her contributions on criminal justice issues, including the passage of the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1991. Barbara Arnwine, as always, Barbara, welcome back. Well, it's great to be on your show. Thank you for having me. So, Barbara, you know, after the election of President Obama, we were we were supposed it was all supposed to be good in in the country. Uh, His election. Yeah, there you go. His his election, according to Matt Bai, was supposed to be the end of black politics. (laughs) The arguments began this morning at 10 in the case of University of North Carolina, followed by uh, the challenge to Harvard. The justices have scheduled 90 minutes for UNC and 70 for Harvard. Since the 70s, the Supreme Court has said that race may be used as one factor universities can consider in evaluating applicants for admissions. Universities say there is a continuing need 
for affirmative action to build diverse student bodies, which they say strengthen the overall learning environment with distinct perspectives and experience. Again, Barbara, we're supposed to be in a post-racial America. What the heck happened? It never, it never was so. It was ah. always a mythology. <laughs> and a lot of what's going on, especially in our Supreme Court right now, is full of what I call racial mythology. We've been dealing with it since 2013 and the infamous, uh, you know, Shelby versus Holder case where, you know, the court has distorted uh, our civil rights uh, laws to basically enshrine white political dominance. You know, I think an interesting um, paragraph, a majority of Americans support a ban on race-conscious emission policies, right? Here's the thing about it. At the time that the um, military was integrated, I think it was like 95% of the white uh, people in the military opposed the integration. The issue of dealing with discrimination by its very nature means in a country that's mostly white, when you're doing something that's going to start to level the playing field, that the numbers are going to be against it. But you don't do it because of the numbers. You do it because constitutionally there is a requirement to do this for the general welfare of everybody, including those who have been discriminated against. Your thoughts? Well, you know, people forget that the issue of affirmative action came up immediately after the Civil War. Uh, when the Freedmen's Bureau was created and when there were other, you know, affirmative measures put forth to uh, take, you know, the impoverished, uh, you know, strictly impoverished African-American population of that time and to try to give them some kind of equal social, political, economic footing. And, uh, and believe it or not, if you go back and look at that era, you'll see that President Johnson uh, when he was president, uh, you know, right after the Civil War, after Lincoln's assassination, uh, that he actually used the term reverse discrimination to oppose the Freedmen's Bureau, to oppose any kind of reparations, to oppose any kind of affirmative action. And he talked about the reverse discrimination against whites and, and how this was all unfair to poor whites. I mean, unbelievable. So this narrative that we're caught in, we've been caught in for centuries. This is nothing new. It is, you know, white resentment, white uh, entrenchment, refusing to yield to a more uh, fair and just framework. And I'm glad you brought that up uh, about uh, reverse discrimination, because if, if you read uh, Du Bois's uh, Reconstru- Black Reconstruction in America, which talks about that whole time, that whole issue of reverse discrimination was used as a wedge issue against poor, uh, to, to create the schism between newly freed blacks and, and, and poor whites to be sure that they did not uh, coalesce but what I I want to move that forward to 1969 and the current affirmative action language was actually implemented by a black Republican named Arthur Fletcher in Philadelphia. It was called the Philadelphia Plan and Richard Nixon adopted it as he saw it as a way of promoting black business and bringing more African-Americans 
into the Republican Party. The whole era of black capitalism, right? Exactly. Uh, you know, I mean, people forget that. You know, there's so much, you know, in our history. You know, I'm always reminded about how in Virginia, uh, you know, during the slavery slave era, that if you freed a black uh, who was enslaved, that you had to, at times, they had laws that required that you paid money into a common pot to uh, offset the damage of that free person's uh, labor, the impact of that free person on whites. Mm -hmm. So it was a pot of money to give the poor whites if you freed a black slave. I mean, that's the kind, I mean, this kind of built-in zero-sum mentality that you cannot have, you know, African-American progress without it being some kind of disadvantage to white Americans has been with us for ages and it's entrenched. And I think when you look at some of the questioning that happened today in the court, you saw it. I mean, you saw the biases of the court. You saw their, you know, uh, manipulating the strict scrutiny standard. You saw a lot going on with the court today. And I'm so glad that some of the, um, you know, some of the, advocates, uh, you know, really made some strong points. I think the uh, woman advocate who pointed out that in the entirety of their docket, that only two women were, uh, <laughs> were scheduled to argue before the Supreme Court and pointing out that of those, that women now are 50% of the bar and how in the world did you justify this disparity. I mean, so, and she stood there in her role as a woman Supreme Court advocate and made that point during the argument, something that they probably did not count on. But it is speaking to the disparities, the barriers, the obstacles, the structural impediments that we continue to throw in the way of groups that have been previously excluded in our society. And talk, if you will, please, about the way the court is being used to undermine equity in this country. And what I mean by that is in 2003 and in 2016, the court upheld limited use of race uh, in, in admissions, saying that the educational benefits of a diverse student body justify some intrusion on this whole idea of equal protection. But as a result of the Trump administration and the shift of the court to the right, now all of a sudden they're trying once again to upset the apple cart. And if I could add one short thing. And how Clarence Thomas, of all people, is the major linchpin. tool. Yes, the linchpin that they use for this. Barbara. Well, I mean, I mean, once again, I mean, this is our history that um, that you know you always uh, see. You know, the Supreme Court throughout history has been more injurious to African American rights than uh, than affirmative for our rights. Uh, you know, there have been some periods of time, like the Warren Court. There's been you know some periods of time, uh, like when O'Connor. Uh, helped to decide 
you know, the, um, the standing, you know, cases now in, in the area of affirmative action. But people need to understand that the history of the court has not been a progressive one. You're from Khrushchev, uh, where they allowed, you know, the uh, killing of African Americans, uh, you know, in the political in the political aftermath of the Civil War, where they allowed for those killers to be uh, excused on the notion that it was not state action uh, that was underlying the uh, police inaction there. I mean, it was just insane. I mean, we've been dealing with this whole perversion of the 14th Amendment, where the 14th Amendment that was created to be a positive engine uh, for uh, African-American advancement uh, post-Civil War have, has, you know, was rapidly uh, distorted and turned into an instrument for white protection and denied and has been, you know, historically, uh, as some people said, turned on its head uh, in its uh, efforts to protect uh, people of color from, uh, you know, societal discrimination. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, the the, uh, uh, you know, there have been some really good legal thought about the fact that we use what we call the strict scrutiny uh, standard, and that's what came up today uh, in the court again, uh, and that it was so, you know, in the gutter, in the Gruder case, uh, it was so important that many of us, when we saw uh, O'Connor's uh, reasoning, uh, that we said this is going to be a problem, mm-hmm. and uh, because. She said, you know, that that she has tied the strict scrutiny standard, and she said at the end of her decision infamously that she hoped in 25 years, 50 years, that there wouldn't be a need for affirmative action. And, you know, and a lot of us sat back and said, what rapidity is going to happen? What kind of acceleration of progress is going to happen in the United States is going to make that true? Okay. Okay. Uh, and so that's what we're, you know, seeing. And apparently this came to haunt us in this argument today. Okay. That the conservatives were all over. When does it stop? When does it stop? When do you not need affirmative action? And I'm like, when do that <laughs> racism stop? When does it stop? When do we not need to have a nation that's built with all these racial inequities? Come on now. Barbara Arnwine, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. We're out. 